The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we sing a simple song that echoes an even simpler song from children's songbooks about how Jesus loves us. And while it is simple, it is remarkable that we can say it and know it to be true. The love of Jesus is a sweet thing. Thank you. We are a people who in ourselves, by, by what we are, can see much in us and among us that, that is not lovely and should not be loved and we sense, we know, runs contrary to you and should invite anger and judgment. And while, as we have been seeing in, in Luke, there is certainly a judgment and there is certainly wrath, there is this sweet truth, as we just sang, as we'll see today, you in Jesus for us are a God of love, are a God of compassion, are a God of mercy. We saw it last week in your patient waiting. We'll see it today in your powerful compassion. You are a God who in Jesus for people pours out love. Thank you. Will you speak to us this morning and convince us of that? convince us of the sweetness of it and the goodness of it, creating us a great desire for it, and show us, focus us on that in Jesus part. You are a God who loves us in Jesus, so Jesus loves us. That calls for, calls for from us, and it, and it, it draws out from us, it woos us towards repentance and Submission and a walking with Him. A walking in life with Him. So move us towards that, please, Father, by Your Spirit this morning. Show us this in Jesus and then move us to follow. We want to be a people who bear fruit, and so would You please move us to follow in, in our heart attitudes and what we think about, what we trust in, and then what we do how we actually speak, how we actually engage with others in the world. Would you move us to be a people who, because we are loved, love. Love all, love our enemies even. As we sit in and sit under, really soaking in the love of God for us in Jesus. Make us a people like that, Lord. And this morning, would you produce in the people here in this room, in, in your church here, would you produce in us a confidence of resting as we see who you are and what you're doing in Jesus and the kingdom, would you, would you cause us to rest, rejoice, 
and then walk after you. Do work here this morning through this passage. Spirit of God, would you move through the room here now and gather us together. Our thoughts are scattered, perhaps. Gather them in. Gather us to a place where we can focus, where we can hear you. And then would you speak, whatever particular way is needed by the individuals here, would you speak to each one and build up, encourage and console. Form your church, Lord, for our good and for the glory of Jesus. That's what we ask this morning. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. It is a simple song, isn't it? Jesus loves me. <laughs> and a marvelous truth. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 13. And up to verse 9 of this chapter, Jesus has been in this ongoing, continuing conversation with this very diverse crowd, which included, where he ended last week, included a, a large portion of the crowd that was at best non-committed, but really more non-committed in an oppositional sense. Most of the crowd stands, stands away from him and some outright opposing him in anger, and it's with that attitude that Jesus ends with a sober warning. We saw last week a sober warning about the need to repent or perish. All alike face this critical decision. All alike are headed towards the judgment and will perish then unless first a person repents. That's the sober message that Jesus himself presented and then pressed home on his listeners, on us even. That's the beginning of chapter 13, and it wrapped up this whole, this whole section in which he was teaching, and he called people to repent. To repent, that is, within, to turn. It's, it's a turning of allegiance. First, an allegiance from loyalty to fundamentally myself, my own agenda, my own goals, my own perspectives, to loyalty shifting over to Jesus, to his perspective, to his goals. Shifting from, at the bottom, what I depend on to make me right before God, my own goodness, my own efforts, my own works, to depending on him and his work on the cross to make me right, to pay for my sin and release me from judgment. That's repentance, and it's within first, and then, of course, it shows outside in our, in our efforts and our works, but it first starts within, and all alike must repent or we will perish. That's hard, but the final, final note, that's kind of the final note of that whole section, but the final, final note we pointed out last week is kind of a subtle warming point because while certainly he is clearly sitting on the call to repent or perish, we saw something else there, too. While that's true, there's something marvelous and warm in the fact that God is mercifully patient, that each of us are alive today, listening to this today, with another opportunity today to hear it and turn, repent and turn and live. And that's all because there is, there is an opportunity to live and there is an opportunity today to repent and live because God is patient, mercifully patient. And so there's another chance, another chance. 
He is honest, and he is a God of righteousness, and he says there is a fork in the road. There is a judgment at which you will perish or live. He's really clear about that, but he is not remotely eager that we perish. This is the character of God. Is perishing real? Yes. Does he want it? Is he eager? Is he, is he excited about it? No. And so he sent Christ to save and then holds out in front of us again today an opportunity to repent and turn. And that, in fact, as we, as we listen to that and hear that, that, in fact, is one of the strongest pulls. That this, the character of God, the merciful, patient kindness of God, is one of the strongest pulls towards repentance. Because we look at this and say, I am worthy of condemnation, and here is the God who patiently offers me hope. What a God. And it draws our hearts to him draws our hearts to him even as we are still Christians now and still look at the frustration of, of sin in our lives. He wants fruit in us and draws us towards fruitfulness by showing us his, with me as a Christian even, his merciful patience. It is, it is not the main point struck, but it is clearly struck in the very last parable, the very final, final point. Repent or perish, and I am a patient, merciful God, and I give you today a chance. That's a good God. And that's where the section ends. And then, today, in verse 10, we come to a totally different setting and event. Scene changes. It's totally different, but it is very similar to things we've seen before. There's a healing in a synagogue on a Sabbath. It's been a quite a while, but we have seen this before. So, right away, as you read this, you come to it, you might say, what's that... What's this doing here? It belongs more with the other stuff about the Sabbath and the other stuff about the healings. Why is it here? And it's here really to see if we, the readers, are any better at checking the weather now than we were before. Remember how back at the end of chapter 12, we talked about how we can check the weather. We can tell where the wind is blowing and what's coming by reading the signs. So here he is teaching, teaching, teaching. Now he's going to show us something. Can you read it? Can you see it? How are you going to respond? Kind of giving us the same thing, another chance at it to discern who Jesus is and what's going on in him and what's coming. But this is the king and the kingdom is here in Jesus. So here's Jesus, here's healing, and here's more of the character of God, particularly compassionate power this morning. So I'm going to make two observations from this passage, but first let me read it. Two paragraphs, beginning in verse 10, down through verse 21. I make two observations from it, one from each paragraph, really. Let me read it first, verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, 
Does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. That's the passage for this morning. First observation from the first paragraph, here it is. God's kingdom of compassionate, restoring power has come in Jesus. God's kingdom of compassionate, restoring power has come in Jesus. So here's Jesus healing in the synagogue on the Sabbath. There's a long-term disabled woman there, it says. And, and we we're told, we're, it's clear, it's not just a mere physical disability. She has been for 18 years now afflicted. She's been in some way bent over, crippled in some way. And it's, it's not just a, a muscle cramp or something like that. It's not just physical. Now, not all physical things are demonic, but this one is. Clearly, she has a disabling spirit, and in verse 16, says that she's been bound by Satan. So we have here synagogue, Sabbath, woman, disabled, and spiritual demonic. We've got everything, all in this one story. And Jesus saw her and called her over in front of the synagogue, spoke to her, laid his hands on her, woman, you are freed from your disability. The demon was cast out. She's immediately healed. Straightened is the word. She is straightened. And you can almost see the point in the word. You can almost see the point in the posture. She's been bent over. She's been bound by Satan. She's a person, and she has been bent over and been looking at the ground for 18 years, unable to straighten herself, and then... Though bound by Satan, she's been set free and restored to humanity, restored to life by Jesus. Glory be to God, says the woman on the Sabbath, which is a problem for some. Verse 14. We're told that the ruler of the synagogue is the only one who speaks, and he chastises the people, which of course is really chastising Jesus who just did it. He rebukes Jesus for doing this. And though he's the only one who speaks, Jesus' response is in the plural, indicating he's at least the spokesperson for some group of people there, and he's certainly reflecting the wider cultural opposition to Jesus. So some are present who, who love this, of course, but there's a group of people who are against it. Jesus confronts them, and he says, You hypocrites. Again, 
This word's come up a few times recently. You hypocrites. Now, we should follow where this passage goes. There's the question raised here about, is this appropriate to do on the Sabbath, and who is Jesus to have this right? Some of that's been dealt with before, and you can look back if you want to. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, and the Sabbath is given by God to people for the restoring of life, for, for actually us to rest with God and to be renewed and restored. So not only is this appropriate, it's, it's entirely appropriate that this happened on this day. But that's not exactly where Jesus goes. When he says, you hypocrites, he then says, does not each of you untie your animal on the Sabbath day? You take your animals, and obviously in asking the question, he's saying this is common practice. You take your animals out to feed them, and you take your animals out to water them. Why? On the Sabbath. Why? Because you know they would suffer otherwise. You can't tell an animal on a hot day, get a drink tomorrow. I'm resting today. It would be cruel. It would cause them to suffer. It might, it might even, in some situations, kill the animal. But it certainly is unnecessarily painful to not feed him and not water him for a whole day. You know that's not right. You know that God cares about the animals, and you certainly care about your animals. So in compassion, in caring for this one, you take them to feed and to water. But you don't think it's right that I do this for this woman on the Sabbath. You think it's right for her to suffer on until tomorrow in the name of God. The double standard there is hypocritical. You are selectively applying the rules of Sabbath, compassionately when it concerns your own affairs, your own animals. But then they claim God is not compassionate, but in fact is really concerned about the rule and they're very rigid about it when it doesn't have anything to do with their own things. This is just like the world. Selectively rigid and selectively flexible when it suits self. But that is not God. This is the God of compassion. And we have to see, as we read this story, we, we need to understand a couple things are going on here. First, and we will, we will discuss this, there is, this is about the sign of do you see who Jesus is? But in the sign of seeing who Jesus is, what we are also being shown about Jesus is this is the character of God. This is the character of the compassionate God. A God who uses his power, who inclines his his ability to benefit those who suffer under darkness and are hurting. We have seen this before throughout this gospel. Jesus has been repeatedly indiscriminately merciful and discriminately compassionate. He has healed whole crowds of people without any question of, of where they stand with him, what they think about him, but just looking at them afflicted and hurting and trapped in darkness. I care about that. And he acts. We've seen that Throughout the book, this is the character of God. And it is being shown to us in Jesus to draw our attention to him, to realize it is the character of God in Jesus. This is Jesus. Character of God in Jesus. Draw our attention to Jesus. That's where God's compassionate power is poured out in him. And here it is on, 
on the day of rest, which is entirely appropriate because that's what the Sabbath is about. The Sabbath was given to people to, to, to point out to them, you know, this is like one day in seven. It's going to be a little foretaste of the rest. The week, the week here picturing the creation order and the seventh day of rest. One day in seven we get a chance to rest. All that's pointing towards the time in the future when we will rest. Restored. Reunited with God. Renewed in our humanity. We who find that in Jesus so the fact that Jesus would restore a woman on the Sabbath to show he's the king of the kingdom is entirely appropriate. And the clear sign here in this passage, do you see it? On the Sabbath, the day when people are to be restored and are to rest with God, the power and compassion of God is poured out in Jesus. Do you see it? Here's the kingdom. Here's the king. Read the signs. That's what's laid in front of us here. Read the signs. See who Jesus is and see the character of God in Jesus. And the question then becomes, why don't some people see it? Some people present get immediately angered by that. Why? Well, there's a warning here to all of us who don't see him rightly. And the answer is it's not a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of evidence. The answer, illumined in his response, verse 15, you hypocrites. Jesus points away from an evidence problem at a heart problem. The problem is in here. It's a matter of will, not intellect. The world is blind and cannot read the signs, cannot see who Jesus is. Not for lack of evidence. It says it wants to honor God and submit to him, but that's only true when it's convenient for self. It doesn't want to see, not really, because seeing that this is who Jesus is to see and to acknowledge this one is the king, this one brings the kingdom, this one when he calls me to repent or perish speaks the truth and must be answered to, that would require submission and surrender and the world is not interested in that. There is no question about was this woman healed and how was she healed? He spoke, he touched her, she stood up. Clear. The resistance comes from the heart because the world does not want Jesus to be who he is. What about you? You have to ask yourself this question. I can't answer for you, but you have to ask yourself this question. Do you want to submit your life to the one true God? Do you want to? Put it another way. Are you willing to surrender to him if he, if he could make himself clear? 
He's made himself clear. He can make himself clear today. Do you want that? Very, very, very often the world hides behind it. It's not, it's not, I don't know. Yeah. Do you want it, yes or no? You're willing to put your life in front of him, yes or no? Too often the answer really fundamentally is no because the world has been told and, and has so deeply bought it feels very natural to us. We've been told the lie that what God really fundamentally about is the laying on, powerfully laying on, layering on, requiring, you see me getting angry there, like that, rule upon rule upon rule to rip away from me that which would be delightful and joyful and that which I really want. God's fundamentally about ripping me off and shackling me and binding me and reducing me. No! The exact opposite. Do you see? Here's a woman for 18 years by Satan, the liar who sold us that one. He has bound, and Jesus, the compassionate power of Jesus, sets her free and restores her. That's God. There is one whose whole MO is to convince you of that, to convince you otherwise convince you that God's out to rip you off and bind you and that is not true, that is not who God is what Jesus does, what God is about and what God is acting to do in Jesus is to set people free to loose them he, said, he invites, he calls and actually commands, come to me you who are weary and heavy laden, you who are bound and oppressed and captured, and I will set you free. This is what God is about. Those who trust their lives to him, he brings them into the freedom of sons and daughters, heirs of a kingdom. He restores us to humanity. He remakes us in the image of God, the God who is good, the God who is love, the God who is wise, the God who is merciful, the God who is gracious. He remakes us into that kind of creature. We were made like that and have been marred and twisted and bent and, and crippled. And God in Christ wants to set people free. That's who he is. That is who he is. Now, for sure, indeed, there is the word no, and thou shall not, in God's vocabulary, absolutely, like there is in any good leader, like there is in any good parent, like there is in any good boss, there has to be no, so that the good yes can be known and embraced. Indeed, there is no in the vocabulary of God, but if you view that as shackles, bought the lie. This Jesus is a restorative ruler, not a destructive one, a freeing ruler, not a binding one. So what about you? Do you see him like this? Do you see him like this? This is who he is. He's the one to whom you must submit but wonderfully, wonderfully, in saying must, we can also say, but then also he is the one in whom I will find this compassionate power 
for me. You will find this compassionate power for you, at work on you, at work in you, at work through you, to untie you, to unbind you, and set you free. Well, how can he do that? This is, this is the greatest question we have to ask. How can he do that for me? His compassionate power can be for you because of what Jesus is fundamentally about. We saw this a few weeks ago. He fundamentally has come to bear that wrath that should be ours. That's how he sets us free. And he sets this woman free as a sign. He touches her and speaks to her as a sign of how he's going to set us all free spiritually, we who trust him. That's what he's coming to do, to go to the cross to set us free. He's going to be bound up like a sacrifice was bound and nailed to a cross in place of us so that we can be set free. Christians and non-Christians alike need to consider this. We see something here of who Jesus is, and in seeing Jesus, we see the character of God, and that's, Christian, if you're a Christian, that's who God is for you. A God of immense power that compassionately is bent for you, and it is particularly bent for you. This is something that is, I, I think, as I looped back through this, I saw this and thought, that is particularly sweet here, and I'm using the word particular on purpose. What does Jesus say Notice this fine point here. Ought not this woman, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? He doesn't quite say that. That would be true, too. I mean, he could have said that. There wouldn't be any problem with that. But he doesn't quite say that. There's something that makes it a little more particular here. And Christian, as you, where, where you sit right now, you can say, oh, I see something. Like from where I'm sitting right now, I see something a little bit more particular aimed at me. Should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, what's daughter of Abraham mean? Not daughter of Adam. Daughter of Abraham. He's underlining something there. This is a covenant person. This is a person who's in this covenant with God. Now, we'd have to sort through a bunch of things about Old Testament covenant and New, New Covenant, sort through a bunch of things there, but the point I'm making right now, the simple point here, this is not just human. What he's saying is, this is a person in covenant. In other words, God the Father is in covenant relationship with this person. This one belongs to him. Shouldn't he care for her? particularly her? Jesus is underlining there very subtly something that as a Christian now, where you sit, you should say, ah, hmm. I didn't know it back then. I, I didn't know it there. But now from this side of things, I can say he had his eye on me, particularly me. And right now, today, has his eye particularly on you, such that he could say, is not this one right here one of my people, someone that I should care for and save? He cares particularly about you. You can know that from this side. 
I'm one of his. His eyes on me, particularly to care for me. His passion, his compassionate power is poured out, is flowing like a river at me, at you, you covenant person. That is a sweet thing that you should lean into and rely on God's power for you. He has already set you free, Christian. He's already set you free from the bondage of, of sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are a slave to God. But day by day by day by day by day, do we not find ourselves in struggle? He has his eye on you. Power from him flowing to you to free you, to stand beside you, to lift you up, and to restore you, to pick up your face and make you human. That is to say, to restore you to the image of God. That's a good thing. Lean into that. Trust it that God in power is for you. It's the first point. The kingdom, here in the king, read the sign and believe. The second point from the second paragraph, though, starts us off in, in perhaps an odd direction. Because it might seem completely unconnected. I'm not sure how this, how this comes up. Now here's the point, and then I'll explain how it comes up, I think. Second observation, by nature, the kingdom starts small and insignificant before it grows large. By nature, the kingdom starts small and insignificant before it grows large. So it seems unconnected, but it's not, and we can tell because verse 18, he said, therefore, so some connection there. Something that was, we just read made Jesus say this. What's the connection? Well, what do we have in verse 17? We have two groups of people. Broadly speaking, two groups. Adversaries, those who are shamed and certainly angry. They do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah King. They, they are in, in rejection that he's the King. Rejection, this is the kingdom. Rejection, they should follow him. They are they are against the determined opposition that's one group and then there are people who are it says rejoicing at all the glorious things done by him like this woman being healed right right in front of them that and other things they they see something unique and they are saying maybe he is the messiah look at all these marvelous things so there's these two two groups one that's against He's a pretender, a false messiah. This is not the kingdom. Look. He healed on the Sabbath. That's against the law. And then another one's thinking, according to what I see, I think the kingdom might be here. I bet he's, up, I bet he's on his way to Jerusalem right now to take the throne and, and cast out Rome. Maybe this is the day that the, that the Lord is going to, in, in divine, dramatic power, Come. And, and change everything for good. 
the delighted people in the crowd are thinking, the disciples and those who are eventually going to turn away from him. But that's kind of their, their perspective, their hope in these two different groups here. And then Jesus says, therefore, actually you both have it wrong. Let me tell you what the kingdom is like. And he gives two little parables that are really kind of like brief analogies. And what do they both have in common? Small, insignificant, almost undetectable beginnings. Of course, you can see a mustard seed. You can see yeast. But neither one of those elements would be called large and significant. But the seed gets planted, buried, and slowly, surely, over time it grows. And then what? The garden ends up with a tree. Oddly, Jesus tells that little parable somewhat counterfactually. When a mustard seed grows up, it it kind of is more like a glorified bush than like a tree. So the fact that you get a a tree out of it is more than what was expected. It's it's an impact beyond expectation, big enough that the birds of the air take nests and they find find shade in it. And the yeast is hidden away in the flower, and it's, it's lost, forgotten about, unseen, except for the fact that then the dough begins to grow. You didn't know it was there. Maybe you forgot about it. But there's, there's a power inside there somewhere that's making the dough change and expand and expand and expand and expand and grow. That's what the kingdom is like, he says. By nature, it starts small and insignificant, but there's some unseen life there, and then it grows and expands and becomes more than you thought, more than you expected. And Jesus says this, to correct the different but similarly mistaken views that when the kingdom of God is present, it's going to be big, showy, powerful, with large impact, loud and open. That's what they both expect. One group says, that's not happening, so he's not the one. One group says, that's about to happen. They're going to be severely disappointed. That's what they think, and that's often what the world and what even Christians today think. So there's something here for us. You find yourself, maybe, put off by Jesus in some way, put off by Jesus in his message, because... It simply isn't that impressive to you. You don't really, as you look at the Christian church and you look around at people and you hear what people talk about, you don't really find that much that is dramatic. You don't find that much that has alarming impact. And so you are perfectly comfortable saying, eh, that's nice, I guess, for you. But I find, frankly, just as much good in other religious things or in non-religious good and ethical philosophies. Eh. It's good for you, but not for me. Well, maybe, if that's you, maybe you need to hear what Jesus is saying here and look at the signs one more time. The kingdom of Jesus is by nature from the beginning small and almost hidden 
and insignificant and therefore easy to overlook, but that doesn't mean it's not there. It doesn't mean it's not real and true. It doesn't mean it's not going to one day be massive, life-altering, decisive. He tells us that right now so that we know it ahead of time and are not surprised by it. That's how it's going to be. It's going to start small and grow. Why is it like that, though? Because of the critical place that faith holds in this way that he brings in the kingdom. He brings it first, before he brings it dramatically onto the stage of, of the world, he brings it first initially to human hearts. And how the kingdom of God comes to live in one's, even in your heart, is by faith. As we repent and turn from ourselves to him. That is a turning that is about trust now in Jesus Faith is what he's, what he's after right now in this time of his patience. Faith in you. And what he's doing is presenting to you, if you have eyes to see it, if you'll look, he's presenting to you enough evidence. Enough evidence for you to honestly ask, do I want that to be true? It would be more convenient, perhaps, if it wasn't. But do I want it to be true? There's enough evidence there to see there is a woman standing there, 18 years a crippled, crippled woman, now a straightened woman. There's enough evidence in, in history, and I mean in history, not in opinion, not in philosophy, I mean in history. Jesus lived, was crucified, was raised, the tomb was empty. Eyewitnesses saw it and believed, and the church was born and has grown and has been sustained all through the centuries. And there's enough evidence all around us, in fact. If you will look at the life in the church, you look at the church and its impact, sure. Look at the life of the church. People, changed people. You've got to get inside of this thing and live inside of it. Are you going to find messed up, broken people? Of course, because they're people. Are you going to find changed and straightened and restored, renewed, reinvigorated people? Yes, and that by Jesus. There's enough evidence there if you want to see it. But he is not going to so overwhelm you with evidence that faith becomes an irrelevant question. You must trust him. He brings the kingdom in small, truly there, like you can see the bud, like you can see the dough growing, truly there. What's laid in front of you, though, is do you want it? And for us, the rest of us here, in one way or another, there's a large group of people, and I'm going to create a spectrum here, a large group of people who in one way or another have already embraced Jesus and his kingdom. And this speaks to us too. There's a spectrum here from devoted believer, certain Christian, and across the spectrum over to person who from time to time quietly wonders, am I on the right path? Is this right? On over further to, I, I used to, I used to think of myself as a Christian or I allowed other people to think of me as a Christian. But not anymore. 
there's a spectrum there. And I had that whole spectrum in view because all of us on that spectrum, all alike to different degrees, have all faced the same problem at one point or another. Shouldn't the kingdom of Christ be more than what I'm experiencing right now? Shouldn't this be more? Shouldn't it be bigger and stronger and more triumphant and more joyful and more influential and more effective? Shouldn't there be more change in the world because of the kingdom of Christ? And shouldn't there be more change in the church because of the kingdom of Christ? And frankly, shouldn't there be more change in me? He talked last week about fruit. Shouldn't there be more fruit in my life if it's true? And shouldn't there be more fruit in the church that's all around me? I mean, I still struggle with some of the same things I've struggled with for decades, and I think the people around me are too. And I look out, and it hardly seems like the world is getting better. It hardly seems like if this is the time of harvest, where's the harvest? There's, there's not a flood of people coming in. There's hardly the kind of perspective of like revival sweeping across the nations and, and people flooding into the church like at harvest time. Like if, if you've got that image, you're gathering in fist over fist. That's not really the case. Shouldn't Christ's kingdom, powered by the Holy Spirit, be more? than what I see. Depending on who you are and how that question struck you, it causes you to say sometimes, I'm out, I don't believe it. Or, probably more commonly for the rest of us, it leads us into discouragement or dismay of some sort. Doubt about ourselves or an uneven trust of God. We wonder what we're doing wrong and we wonder what God thinks of us and if it's worth it or if we've made a mistake or we kind of hedge our bets. We, we, we kind of stand one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world because that seems like a better to diversify. In other words, it leads us right to the place that all of these listeners to Jesus are going to be, as they watch him get arrested, not enthroned, tried, convicted, and killed, and buried. They're going to doubt, and they're going to wonder, and they're going to be confused, because this is not how the king... If, this, if the kingdom of Christ is true, it should be more than this. This seems like nothing, like the end, flat-out end. Jesus knows that day is coming for them and knows that we're going to struggle with that too, that we're going to expect the kingdom to look like more than what we see it to be. We're going to expect triumph and power and that will not be seen with our own eyes. It's going to trouble us. And so he preempts that day by giving us something first to look back at when that time comes. Something that'll, that'll when we're rocked, will help us find our footing again and stand. He, so to speak, 
brings up this woman, stands her in front of us, and if we could compress the time and bring him and her here, and he would ask her, so, ma'am, in front of us all, has every problem been removed from your life? Well, no, no, no. Do you still have the same job you had last week? Yeah. Is it still a cruddy job? Uh-huh. Still struggle to find a living wage there? Uh-huh. Yep. People still laugh at you? Sure. Yeah. And if you could look at her whole life, still going to get sick and one day die? Uh-huh. Still struggle with sin? Uh-huh. Yep. Some of the same ones I've had my whole life. You still have people around you that still themselves face all these things? Uh-huh. Yeah. So why are you standing here smiling? I'm standing here. That's why. I'm standing here, straightened. And how did that happen? You, she would say to him. I face all the same stuff. Some of it has seemingly gotten worse over the years. But this I know. I spent 18 years like this. And now I'm standing here like this because you said, woman, you are restored. That I know. So the rest of it I'll deal with. I have plenty of questions about the rest of that stuff, but oh well, I'm standing here set free. And we're supposed to look at that, read the sign, and say, indeed, he is the king. Because no satanic power breaks into Satan's house and loots it. No human sinner restores people to wholeness. That's a God of compassionate power who does that, and that's only the God of compassionate power who does that. And that's also the God that came out of the grave for me and set me free. Because I'm, I'm that woman. You're that woman. If you're a Christian, you're that woman. Do you have all the same garbage? Yep. Worse? Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. Yes. But you also have this for certain. You live now. Because of Jesus. And you, you can get looped into, we can get looped into all kinds of questions about ourselves, but stop for a second and step outside of yourself and say, I know who he is, and I didn't. And I want him more than anything, and I didn't. I know what it's like to be guilty, and I also know what the cross has done to, to forgive me. I am certain, even when you doubt, loop back in that and say, no, 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 no. I know. He's testifying to my mind, even as I say this right now. I know what will happen to me when I die. I used to not know, and I used to fear the judgment. I used to, to hear, repent, or perish, and think, oh, my word. And I know I know that I am a daughter, that I am a son of his, and that his eye is on me to care for me. Christian, 
You know that to be true. The Spirit of God in you says, you're mine. So you stand up next to you, not just the woman of the Scripture. You stand up next to you, your past self, and you look at it and say, do you have troubles? Yes. But you stand a new person. And then, if you want to, you can look out and say, and that's also true of that one and that one and these ones, there is life here. Perfect? Nope. Of course not. There is more to come. The kingdom will be. But look, there's a sprout there for certain. Look, the lump has grown for certain. There's life there. I have, I've had a number of conversations with, with folks about and myself wrestle with sometimes wrestle with the glass half empty sort of doubt gloom disappointment man things aren't what they should be things things should be more but christian if that's you this is something i have to tell myself so i tell you cuz i tell myself we are we must take our thoughts captive and submit them to Christ rather than let our thoughts take us captive. It's the other way around. The Bible says so. It's the other way around. What is true? The gospel is true. This man walked the earth, did what he did, hung on a cross, died, rose again from the dead. That is fact. And the church exists because of it. And the scriptures are trustworthy more so than any other document in the world. That's fact. And then I let myself on Tuesday say, oh man, there should be more. No, no, take that thought captive and submit to the truth. Should there be more? Absolutely, and there will be. But the kingdom has come really and truly now. Small? Yes. True and real? Yes. In this you can rejoice. In this you can rejoice. If you look at this woman standing there, restored and renewed, if you look at yourself even, restored and renewed, and if you look at the empty tomb, the resurrected Jesus, raised to reign for you in compassionate power. Trust him. Trust him. Walk with him. He's for you, which means nothing can be against you. Martin Luther talked about that and said, nothing? Everything's against us. Yeah, of course. But nothing that matters is against you because the one in compassion and power is for you. Let's pray. Father, would you give us eyes to see the small sprout, the, the growing lump, the small but increasing kingdom, and particularly to see your work in us individually and, and in the church corporately. This is because the gospel is true. You have been raised. You 
You are on the throne reigning. You are the king. You have broken the power of sin to hold us. You have begun the bearing of fruit in our lives. You have done that. As much as we would like, no. More than there was, of course. Because you were true. So will you bring compassionate power to bear on our lives and first give each one of your people here hope, awareness, assurance that they are yours and you are theirs? Will you cause us to see that the future is bright and it's full of hope and in faith cause us to walk with you? And Father, those here who to some degree or another are still outside Maybe, maybe just resistant, maybe particularly weighed down, or maybe, maybe outside completely, non-believers. Or if there are people here who do not believe at this moment, would you open their eyes and cause them to see Jesus as hope? Call them to faith and give them life. Would you build your church, please, Lord? Will you create in us a happy, a happy resting in you? That is a, a resting that is also vigorous. That is active and takes captive our thoughts and does not let them run off, but submits them to the truth of Jesus. And then actively makes choices to believe you, to trust you, and step out. To depend on you and to love others around us. Lord, make us that kind of a people, please. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That Jesus loves us is a sweet thing. Help us to remember that and to believe it and to walk in its strength. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.